Good afternoon, ladies and gentlemen. Will you fasten your seatbelts to take off, please? Thank you. Kia ora, hello, and welcome to Sound Salad, where we toss around all things spoken and all things heard. Brought to you by Audiobooks New Zealand, New Zealand's leading producer of audio content. We hope that you will have a pleasant journey, and if we can add to your comfort in any way, please do not hesitate to press the call bell. Kia ora everybody and welcome back for another episode of Sound Salad. So today we are tossing it up with David Wattet. So David is an enthusiastic writer as well as filmmaker and a family doctor, no less. Having worked in rural communities and overseas, these experiences are what seem to provide the inspiration for most of his stories, of which there are many. <laughs> so David came to Audiobooks NZ to have his latest release, Gang Girl, produced I was lucky enough to be the narrator for his protagonist, Alicia's somewhat harrowing story, and we'll get into that a bit more later. So there are several um, follow-up tales to come as well, I believe. So without further ado, David, do you want to tell us a little bit about yourself and what led you from the world of medicine to the world of creative fiction writing? Yeah, you're right. Yes, well, um, I suppose I've had quite an interesting journey. Um, I think storytelling's been in my DNA since I was a, a young child. Um, I remember probably at the age of 11 or 12, uh, my parents and I, we used to watch um, TV classic serials on the television on Sunday, you know, Sunday tea time. And mm-hmm. one of my earliest memories was Oliver Twist. Uh, I remember in that penultimate episode where Bill Sykes murders Nancy, I was actually quite violently sick afterwards. And wow. my parents, my parents weren't weren't going to let me watch the final episode. I just I had to I had to know how it was going to end. Mm. So um, I watched it, and it, it left such an impression on me. And I sort of found out, was read afterwards that uh, that Dickens' novel um, Oliver Twist had actually changed the poor law um, in, in the UK, and uh, you know it was a large part to do with putting putting to an end those awful workhouses. Mm. That's what kind of proved to me that the, the written word can change the world. And yeah. after that, I decided I wanted to write. And not long afterwards, I read these books by A.J. Cronin, who was a, a, a doctor who um, became a writer. Mm-hmm. And he wrote a book called The Citadel, which uh, is about a young idealistic doctor who um, who goes to work in a, in, in a, a small practice in Wales and the, the Community's all going down with typhus because they've got an infected well, but nobody wants to change it. And this young mm. doctor actually blows up the well. And I read after that that um, the Cronin's novel was actually sort of in, instrumental in starting the National Health Service in Britain, wow. um, the model which has gone around the world. And I suppose that, in a way, kind of inspired me to be a doctor, I think. So um, I suppose the third part of my journey is as a, you know, as a, as a sort of indie filmmaker. Mm. Um, I, I'd never been to the cinema as a, you know, as a child. This was just something I guess I came from a family that just weren't weren't moviegoers. And um, yeah. I remember at the age, at sort of age fourteen, uh, I was out at something like something was some conference my parents were at, and I think my brother and I must have been very naughty because they, they needed to get rid of us for the afternoon, so we were dumped in the local cinema. And the film just happened to be Lawrence of Arabia, and I remember going into that sort of really drab, dingy, sort of flea pit of a cinema, uh, and 
I'd heard this film last for over three hours, and I thought this is going to be this is going to be even even worse than the afternoons we had recently. And then just all of a sudden, that sort of flea pit was transformed into the desert, and uh, and just the power of that story and the the sort of the, the imagery that went with it was just to me to me as a sort of impressionable teenager, it was just unbelievable. And um, the story sort of lives with me long after the sort of closing titles had faded out, and um, so I went to my library after that, and I sort of read out that this film, Lawrence of Arabia, was made by this dude that I'd never heard of at that time called David Lean. Mm. So I read up about him, and it turned out that he was brought up as a very strict, very strict Quaker and wasn't allowed right. to go to the movies as a child. And he first went when he was about 14, 15, and was just kind of bowled over by the magic of cinema. So I thought, you know, he's a kindred spirit. Yeah. Um, I was very fortunate. I, I actually met him late, later in his life um, when he was directing Passage to India. Really? Um, yeah. How and did he was that transpire? Well, um, I actually, it was um, it, um, when he made a, um, a pass, Passage to India, he was, he was nicer at the time. Um, mm-hmm. And I just, and I just sort of, you know, wrote him a letter, care of his producers, just to. And just tell him how much is from you know Lawrence of Arabia. It's all changed, changed my life. And, mm. I, and I got this really enthusiastic letter back from him. Um, wow. We met a couple of times, and he was he was trying right up till I mean, he was by this time he was in his eighties. He was trying to make this film of Nostromo, Joseph Conrad's novel, and it was kind of all set up. And then, um, yeah, unfortunately, he, he became ill with with throat cancer, mm. um, and the, the film was never made. Yeah, it was also very, very moved afterwards. That, um, after he died, I got a message from his widow, and she'd found my letter. So he must have kept it. She found my letter in his, with his belongings. And he asked if, if, if I minded if that went into the National Film Archive. Oh, wow. So, yeah, that's so cool. Oh, my gosh, what a story. It goes to show, eh, sometimes if you just sort of reach out to your heroes sometimes, you know, they, yeah, they yeah. are just people, you know. Yeah, that's right. <laughs> that's so yeah, cool. yeah. Um, yeah. As a, you know, the film director, John Borman, who was mm-hmm. you know, quite a close friend of, of David Lean, and he said that they, just before David Lean died, he he went to see him, you know, and he was virtually on his deathbed. Bed, and they said, oh, well, we've been lucky, haven't we? We've made movies and... John Bourne saying, yeah, well, those producers, they maybe tried to stop us, but we got there in the end. And yeah. David Lean just said, well, look, I really hope that I get better and that I'm able to make Nostromo because, you know, filmmaking, I'm just beginning to think I might have got the hang of it. Oh, <laughs> yeah. Oh, what did you do today? Yeah. yeah. Wow. Oh, gosh. Yeah. Well. I'm sure that there are plenty, plenty stories like that as well. Goodness me, yeah, far out. Yeah, so yeah. many, so many stories, eh? That you that you sort of have in your mind yeah. if if you are if you are hardwired to be a storyteller. You know, it's sort of like yeah. every every person that you meet and every every kind of little character yeah. that jumps into your head. You know, you kind of go, "There's there's there's not enough time. There's not enough time That's to tell right. you." Yeah. General practice, you know, so, 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 people sort of say, "How do you sort of fit everything in?" But I think. <laughs> Um, general practice is such a source of stories. I mean, you're meeting so many people every day with them. They've all got their own stories. And um, mm. it's, yeah, I think, yeah. I mean, the, I'm sure the people that, people that you meet in life, in yeah, so all areas of your life are the inspiration. Yeah. 
So is that is it is it mainly then from from meeting all of your patients in these different sort of environments that's that's kind of impelled you to tell these sort of these stories like specifically, you know? Yeah. Well, um, I mean, for that gang girl, um, you've had quite. I mean, it, I suppose it's about. It was almost 12 years since I first had this sort of idea of a story. And it was, I, I, I lived for, I suppose I lived, I worked in a, in a rural community in the Gisborne region. I was there for about 16 years. And then mm-hmm. um, just the time was right and I wanted to move in the back south. Um, I've you know, lived in Omaru since then. It's somewhere I'd been before and I kind of always felt I wanted to come back to the Omaru region. Mm-hmm. But I, I wanted to do I wanted to do a film, you know, using a lot of the people I knew in the Southwestern region before leaving, and we decided on on doing sort of like a Kiwi take on Romeo and Juliet, and that mm-hmm. was that's how it sort of started. And I thought, well, we'd have instead of having rival families, we'd have rival gangs. Yeah. Um, and while I was sort of doing, you know, doing research for that, I um, I went to visit this quite notorious gangster, and uh, so I was kind of very nervous when I sort of turned up at this place, and you, you bang on the door, and you hear these rottweilers barking, mm. and you bang again, and more rottweilers appear, and you know, um, eventually, you know, an eight-year-old boy opened, you know, opened the door, and um, I heard his father's voice booming in the um, booming in the background. Who's that? Is it the cops? <laughs> the boy says, "No, no, it's the doc." <laughs> the gangster shouting, "It can't be the doctor. There's nobody sick. Are you sure it's not the cops?" <laughs> and I said, "No, it's definitely the doctor. That's the dude that stitched my hand up when I cut it, and it bloody hurt." <laughs> <laughs> anyway, this little gang- gangster um, emerged, and I mean, he was—I mean, he was a wonderful source of stories, and. Mm. Um, Two, two things that he told me stuck out. He talked to me about a gang leader's daughter and how she'd tried all her life to get away from the gang. And the other thing he talked about, this sort of ceremony where instead of having a gang patch, the um, the, the young lads were tattooed. Mm. And I thought that would make the tremendous opening to a book, um, yeah. particularly if it was like seen through a, you know, sort of 10-year-old girl with a daughter's eyes. So... None of that sort of fitted with the film that I was making, so I sort of kind of stored it away in the memory bank and thought I would make a really good novel, you know, sometime mm. down the track. And the other interesting thing from that meeting was I said, "Well, look, you know, cause he, he had, yeah, I mean, he had he had the sort of he had the sort of full facial gang tattoo, and I thought he looked brilliant in the film. Mm. So I, I said to him, well, would you, would you not, would you consider being an extra in the film?" And he goes, "Me act." Mm. Oh, no, I don't think so. But my mate, Ben, he would be brilliant. He's an absolute show-off. He'd love it. The gangster's <laughs> wife comes in and she says, you can't ask Ben, he's in jail. <laughs> Perfect. Hold <laughs> up, eyes, And he says, we don't use the J word in this house. He is temporarily unavailable. <laughs> <laughs> I love it. Temporarily, yeah, so, goodness me. Uh, yeah, now, now that you do mention it, I mean, a little bit of a spoiler alert for anyone who's planning on reading that 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 very first sort of introduction to the gang girl story, that sort of first few pages where it's just her with her mother, just having to kind of watch these very very young young kids, really, you know, getting quite seriously in a, in a, in the in the um, traditional sort of sense, right? It was the kind of it wasn't like the stick and poke thing, eh? It was that they had sort yeah. of sp- like specific instruments to 
to, yeah, to work right, on. Yeah. That's sort yeah. of, you know, based on their description, were quite kind of brutal in a, in a lot of ways. But yeah. um, I found it quite interesting as well that, um, that, that there was the setting of West Coast New Zealand, but the sort of gang affiliation or kind of culture came from that sort of Irish Celtic kind of influence yeah, or so. Yeah. Like, was there a kind of specific reason for that in particular for you? I mean, it did, like, do you have some sort of obviously extensive knowledge of that kind of, that sort of world of that kind of, you know, that that sort of gang culture as opposed to anything that we would know or affiliate with here, you know? Well, um, I so when I when I made the, the film, which was you know which, which was very you know so I suppose I mean it was very different sort of story. It was more a sort of Romeo and Juliet story without perhaps quite the same element of tragedy in it. Yeah, but we had an almost so that was made in in Gisborne. We had an almost entirely sort of Maori cast and crew, um, and I, I started to you know initially um, first drafts of Gang Girl were more in that in that sort of setting, and I actually set it in the the Gisborne region, but mm. um, I got quite a few, you know, cultural readers and um, talked to a number of, of, of Maori writers, and they mm. said, well, look, honestly, we're trying to get away from the idea of the, this huge association of Maori and gangs. Yeah. And I thought, yeah, I, I don't um, I don't want to perpetuate that stereotype. No. And, yeah. So... I actually rewrote the book from started um, started from the beginning and had and had it as an immigrant um, a, a, an immigrant family and um, you know mm. basically leaving 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 the sort of gangs of London because they were you know in trouble there and sort of named the, the the two main characters father were fathers were twins and I named them Ronnie and Reggie after the sort of notorious Cray twins so. Oh, I, see. I, I think, yeah, and I and sort of mo- and sort of moving the moving the location gave me a chance to sort of re you know sort of rethink it, mm. and I think it brought a, a different perspective to the story because I remember that um, you told me once that when you were recording it that you talked to the technicians in between sort of takes of the audio book recording that. Mm. Uh, it sort of shows how you know how unfair it is that these outsiders can come into a community, turn absolutely upside down, and make everyone's life a misery. Yeah, yeah. So I, th- I think that was something that came out in the in the sort of in, in my rewrite that wasn't there in the original. Mm, yeah, yeah, yeah. I, yeah, they do sort of go out like they do sort of harp on regularly about their own sort of territories and their own, you know, mm. their sort of sense of ownership over, over um, space and people and things, you know, it is, yeah. it is it, it, like, it is even sort of more cutting to know that they haven't actually been there that long, really necessarily, you know, yes. yeah, <laughs> that's right. yeah. hasn't actually, you know, yeah, yeah it's, um, yes, it did, like there were, there were definitely characters that you could tell had been there for a lot longer. Yeah, you know, that yeah. had that had been in that um, you know Roaring Creek community for a lot longer than than that sort of huge gang family that just seemed to take over the entire colony, like, um, more or less. Yeah. You know? yeah, quite quite something. Um, so was that that um, the the film that you made was that was that a make of Gang Girl or was that a, the the short I think that I read about um, was that um, Amiri and Aroha was that the yeah Amiri and Aroha yes, was the film right. yeah the, yeah, that was cool. the sort of, 
the the, the Maori take on 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 sort of Romeo and Juliet. Yes. Yeah. So I'm just going to say we we made it, and it it um it did very well, particularly in the in the U, in the US. It won quite a lot of awards at film indie film competitions in the mm. US. Yeah. Um, and in fact, we made two um we, we made two sort of follow up films, which took the because the the story sort of starts in the. I started the story in the 1970s, so that I could really tell a full, you know, full life story of the yeah. of the characters, and um, and we did the same with the film, and actually made two, you know, two uh, two sequels, which again did did, did so well on the international film festival circuit, mm-hmm. and then. Um, mm. And then, say after that, I mean, the f- film started about was t- 2010. We shot Amri and Aroha, so that's what 12 years ago now. Wow, gosh! I guess I've kind of, in some ways, been working on this story since then. I, I've I've finished an, an, another st- story, sort of in between, that's sort of quite quite different. Yeah. Um, it's called the the, the road to the road to Madapur, and that's it's about right. a, Ki- a Kiwi doctor. Um, Who's sort of dis- disillusioned um, um, with various issues that arise in New Zealand, and he, his life sort of collides with a, an Australian missionary's daughter, who's unwillingly um, accompanying her family to a, a mission in India, and their sort of lives say collide in India. Um, at, in the past, I've, I've done worked in India, you know, for a number of times at various mm-hmm. sort of rural locations in India. So I, I kind of wanted to go back to do some of the research, but with you know, COVID, it's not been possible. So yeah, no, gosh, my no. sort of memories of the community are, you know, may, may, may be a little bit hazy, but... Um, so we like where were you in India? Were you, so you were obviously in, in, in rural communities, as as you said. What's that, yeah. what's, what was that like? It, well, it was, yeah, it, I mean, it was... It, it, it was um, it was in the, the, the late 1990s, most of the time I, I was there, and um, I worked with some local doctors in this, this area called Madhapur, which is um, in Odisha State, and it, it, it's a very sort of poor area and very much prone to flooding, and um, right. we had to do some, you know, some some rescue work when there were some really you know, severe floods while I was there, but... Um interesting thing was um we we had a we had a campaign to um raise money for immunization of all the children there and mm-hmm. um the local authorities you know we raised the money but the local authorities wouldn't let us you know give the vaccines they said oh these are these are vaccines developed by white christians you wouldn't give them to your own children you're trying to give them to ours and um really oh my gosh yeah. Oh, that's I, so I, upsetting! Oh. I remember afterwards, um, I, I had to, I did a, um, I, I did a sort of keynote presentation on this at um, the World Organization of Family Doctors had a, um, a conference in Christchurch, and I did this keynote on it. And at the end of it, this American guy got up and um, there was a question and answer, and this American guy got up and he said, "If I gave you a million U.S. dollars," For your project, how would you spend it? The only answer I could think of on the on the spur of the moment was I said, "Well, we've raised the money for the immunizations. We've got the immunizations. We can't give them, so I'd use your million dollars as backsheesh to bribe bribe some of the officials to let us give the vaccines." 
Wow, hey. So, so how long were you there for then? I did. I, I've I've been in a community for a, I worked there so solidly for a, about a about a year, and then went wow. you know back back sort of several times. I got a um, sort of almost in another life. I worked on the World Organization of Family Doctors Working Party on Rural Practice, which is a sort of international group, mm-hmm. and. Um, they were they so generously you know sponsored the work and um, so I've been back a few times. We tried to set up a sort of similar project in Cambodia, but it just didn't really just didn't get the. Um, so I think these things are only useful if the you know if the local you know if the local doctors because we if you're sort of trying to help set up a a sort of practice, mm. you don't want to you don't want to leave them with something that's dependent on you. You've got to make them sort yes. of independent you've got to be able to step away from it yourself mm. but the pro- project in India did what so did work very well and um I can imagine how one year there will definitely yield multiple books I could imagine gosh yeah so I know that book sort of finished and edited and I've got it it's with a you know a couple of publishing houses are sort of considering it at the moment so cool. hopefully that should be be out soon so I've got two other things. Two other things I'm still working on at the moment. I'm doing a, you know, second book for Gang Girl, which mm-hmm. you know takes the story because it sort of kind of ends on a little bit of a cliffhanger. Um, there were two, so, aren't there? Are there uh, two sequels? Blood, Blood Cousins yeah, and Gang Blood. Yeah, yeah that's right. Yeah. <laughs> so I'm about three quarters through the second one. I mean, I've got both of them sort of drafted, mm. but then they do change as you write them. Yes, yeah, of course. I mean, writers talk about um, writers always say there are two types of writers. The you know the the plotters who plot everything out and write a synopsis of the book and then sort of write it from the synopsis. And then there's the the pantsers who go on the seat of the pants and kind of make it up as you go along. And um, <laughs> I, I I remember sort of listening to a few people like um, Simon Rushdie was saying, "It's all a load of nonsense. You 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 you, you, you if you you, you just." Get down, you sit down in the story, you know, and you develop the story. You you plan it, yes, but um, but you're not sort of you're not um, sort of glued to that plan. And I think that's how it is. You sort of have a story there, but then if you've actually developed real characters, then they actually tell the story themselves a bit, and you find mm-hmm. that you're you're sort of guiding the story sometimes rather than writing it. Yeah. Sometimes I find it quite interesting, like particularly in in Gang Girl, and then you know, and obviously others as well, where there are sort of those kind of plot twists that come at you just like right at the end of a chapter or something. You know, um, there were certain moments where because you know the characters so well, as soon as you see yeah. or read a new setting or a new context come up, you just go, "Oh no, oh no!" I bet you that they're going to walk in. I bet you that they are, and it's just going to suck for them. And, like, yeah. and, and, and yeah. it happened all the time, you know, <laughs> all the time, just main, mainly because. I suppose when you're so invested in in certain characters, then ultimately you know exactly what their worst case scenario would be. You know, yes. and yeah. I have to say, in Gang Girl, there were so many times that we just had to stop recording and just go, "Come on, give her a break, damn it!" Like, <laughs> or, you know, or like, or Mickey, you know, give give Mickey a break. Yeah, with dad, break you know, yeah. like so often we were just kind of just sitting there going, "Oh, not yeah. again!" Yeah. But you know, ultimately, I think in a way that 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 sort of like incessant something going wrong, incessant something going wrong again and again and again, it painted a really tragically accurate picture, I believe, of yeah. what 
of what that young yeah. girl's potential struggle was like, you know, actually yeah. the actual severity and 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 difficulty of actually, you know, trying to escape a situation like that when, you know, mm. it's it must be incredibly common, I would imagine. Yeah. You know? Yeah. Well, I mean, there was um there was another one that I read about as well, the um threepence on the carpet. Oh yeah, thumbs on the carpet. Yeah. yeah, what's that one? Yeah. Well, um, it's a, that's about a Kiwi musician, um, mm-hmm. and, and it, it sort of it 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 starts it starts off. Um, he's a, he goes on this overseas experience to to, to London, um, and he you know he wants to be a musician, but he's actually working for a bank, mm-hmm. um, and it starts uh, it, it starts in the sixties. Um, you know, and he thinks, you know, London, it's going to be fantastic. It's the, you know, the world of this emerging group called the Beatles and yeah. music um, all around. Um, he gets involved in writing, you know, protest songs. He gets involved in the um, Aldermaston marches. So, mm-hmm. I, I, so I kind of like bringing historical, the actual events, you know, into the story. Yeah. So he gets involved with the Aldermaston mar- marches. And, of course, his bank is owned by South Africans and you know um when he gets involved in the sort of anti-apartheid movement mm. of course they um you know they sack him from the bank and yeah there's a sort of story he um there's a sort of failed romance with him and um Zoe who's one of the you know one of those kind of hippie movements and mm-hmm. anyway in the end he has to come back he comes back to New Zealand um sort of broken um, tries to make a sort of living as a you know as a, a, a you know as a, a musician, but he moans the fact that all, all um, um, you know all New Zealanders are interested in is rugby. You know nobody's interested yeah. in protest and folk music. And he said the only time, the last time anybody listened to any of my any of my you know protest songs in New Zealand was when the, there was a Springbok tour. But hey, that was because it was rugby. Yeah, yeah, <laughs> um, God. <laughs> Anyway, he gets left this um, this legacy by a, an uncle that he's never heard of, or, um, and he, he thinks it's a scam. Eventually, but he goes back to the far into Northland to to get this 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 legacy, and it turns out it's a box of puppets. Mm-hmm. Uh, and it, you know, and it, um, I don't know what he's do with these puppets, but. It, Anyway, it, 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 at the end of the story, he, he actually goes back to he goes back to to, to England, and he um, he, he works as a, a puppeteer, putting on Punch and Judy shows on the at the seaside, and um, he has this sidekick, you know, charges all the kids, you know, threatens on the carpet, yeah, that face threatens to sit on the on the carpet and watch the show, and um, mm. and there's a sort of secondary story about um, you know about a boy who. Uh, a boy who who watches his show, and he actually turns out to be a you know rock musician, and that's sort of later in the story that their two lives collide. So. Ah, cool. So Ooh, I like I'm it. Half, halfway through that. So. Gosh, so you're you're sort of like at varying stages through multiple projects, then really, aren't you? So is is yeah. Is, yeah. So you've got Road to Madhapur, which is sort of. Yet, yet to be sort of published, so to speak, but it is sort of complete. Yeah, we've got yeah. Threepence on the carpet. We've got is 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 Blood Cousins the next the next yeah, sequel? In, yeah, okay, yeah, cool. yes, nice, yeah. amazing. That's yeah, so exciting. I, I, I have got as a screenplay. Um, you know, I mean, I, I, after 
Yeah, after Amari and Aroha, I wanted to you know do another film, and I, I, I've I've written this script. It's called you know, it was. Um, I mean, I wrote it. It must have been after um, I think two elections ago. I remember you know watching the 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 the, the minor party leaders debate, mm. um, and they were talking about um, child poverty. Yes, and I, but yeah, Mike Hosking was, you know, um, you know, was chairing it, and um, you had Honey Harawira, um, you know, talking about um, um, talking about in the child poverty was that you know that he thought was the most important thing for the election. Mm. Um, I forgot that guy's name. He was the leader of the what's it, the Conservatives at the time. Um, he was the one who. You know, um, but he he was going on about there is no there is no child poverty in in you know in New Zealand and uh, <laughs> amazing you know and maybe not in his house but. <laughs> and and what I thought of I, I was um, I wanted to you know to start the, the film with a with actually a, a social worker who was burnt out watching mm-hmm. it. And he gets so mad, you know, with these politicians. He actually takes up the television and throws it out of the window. <laughs> and, and then it sort of flashes back to um, it flashes back to his story of how he got so burnt out. Um, and um, I I included a couple of um, you know, a couple of real life incidents in it, like the there was a march down Queen Street to sort of Hikoi of protest. Mm. And then there was a um, at the end of the uh, of the script, there's a there's a there's a hikoi um, to Parliament where they delivered um, the petition um, about child poverty. So, mm-hmm. um, I yeah, I, I got a screenplay and I, I I sort of cost it. And I thought, well, it would it would cost um, you know cost quite a considerable sum of money to make because you'd have to sort of recreate those. Big mess um, scenes, eh? Scenes. So I, I did a I did approach it out of um, New Zealand producers and um I had a couple of, I had some of you that said that you know no, I, I I really actually said it it's it, it's like a um a Kathy come home from for our times. Yeah, so what does that reference mean? What does that well, mean? Kathy you know, come home um was a, it was a it was a very um it was a very powerful. Um, it, it was a very powerful um, TV film. I think it must have been about the late sixties or seventies. But it was about homelessness. Right. Um, okay. Yeah. It, it was a very. I mean, it, it was a very um, sort of highly thought of film, and it started that um, charity called Shelter. Um, right. Which was uh, it was I think it was largely in the UK, but it was actually started by a New Zealander, and not just a, a New Zealander, but an Omeruvian who wow. went to Waitaki Boys High School, um, Des Wilson. Um, yeah. So um, we, we we were looking at, um, and we actually had a um, we had a couple of act- actors in mind who you know we sort of approached agents. For it, but then sort of COVID struck, and um, mm. yeah, and um, yeah, just um, haven't really been able to get it off the ground. But yeah, would you do like a sort of a, a, a sort of like smaller version of it, perhaps? Do you think? I mean, is it yeah. is it is it a short film or a feature, Hikoi? It's really a feature film. Yeah, yeah. Um, 
The screenplay is about 90, 90 pages, and they say a page of screenplay overall. Yeah, yeah. a minute. A minute of screen time, so, yeah. Wow. It does sound like one of those prominent kind of, you know, moments in our social history that probably yeah. should be sort of resurrected in a lot of ways, you know? Yeah. I think it's, um, yeah. it's interesting we've kind of got, you know, we have had a number of sort of TV films come out that have been around, you know, actual events in New Zealand, you know, like yeah, yes. whether it be Erebus or whether, you know, whether it be the Springbok tour or anything like that, you know, we've had a number of them come out over the past decade. It'd be, it'd be really interesting to see, you know, particularly if that is a trend that, you know, it'd mm. be really awesome to see if that, you know, was able to be picked up by someone in the future. Cause it sounds like it's a really important sort of, you know, time really. Um, are there are there any other sort of um, like just screenplays that you're working on, or or do you think that in future you'll probably continue to work in a sort of write 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 the novel and then write the film kind of you know process? I suppose. Okay. Um, I mean, one of uh, one. I mean, one of the the great things about I suppose writing a novel is that you can change it, and um, yeah, sure. So, like when they made the independent films, I mean, um, obviously it was constrained by sort of budget it's like that. But, yes. um, but I mean, I mean we, we did burn down a house and blow up a hydroelectric <laughs> station, but quite, quite realistically. Yeah. But I, I think the difficult thing was that um, most of the actors that we had were, 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 were sort of doing it through goodwill, um, mm-hmm. um, and they were quite happy to work for experience rather than you know. For experience yeah. and exposure rather than pay. So mm-hmm. um, we had all sorts of goodwill from the actors. But the trouble is if a project's going on over a period of time, you know, people, you know, people do move on. Mm-hmm. Um, yes. And you find that sometimes you get to editing a film and you wish, oh God, I wish I'd done that differently. Mm. But I guess if you're a big studio, you can um, you know, you can call up the the actors and you know, arrange to do pickup shots, but it's yeah. much more difficult if you if you're a sort of indie filmmaker to get you know to get everyone back on um, if they haven't moved away, then they've maybe had a haircut or something, you know. And, yeah, no, totally. You know, these I things know. that make it make it dif- difficult. And I mean, one of the in the the, the the second of the films we made, one of the leading actresses. Um, Shiva, I'm really sorry, but I've got offered a you know offered a job in Australia. Um, mm, yeah, we've got you know we've got sort of twenty five percent of her you know sort of her work filmed, and she was mm. going to Australia. And I thought, well, we've either got to you know recast the part or yeah. and, and and start again and lose all the sort of work that we've done. But um, you know, she she agreed to you know to come back for a, you know for a few days. Um, mm. So obviously it sort of adds to the budget when you've got to sort of fly fly people back and everything. Of and course, more, goodness me! More, more more than that, it's it's just making sure that you get everything right first yeah. time because you know you haven't got a chance to do retakes or you know yeah. um, pick up shots and that sort of scenario. So it's such yeah. a shame about the indie film making scene like that for you know yeah. because oftentimes they are you know. In, like independent festival films oftentimes are some of the best cinematic work that you'll see. Yeah. You know? yeah. <laughs> and it's such yeah. a shame because, you know, you really kind of wish that there was, I don't know, just kind of either more funding or more, more, more sort of um, yeah. like local, local support for, for projects yeah. that are being made, particularly in environments like, 
You know, I mean, yeah. there's, heaps of, there's, there's always heaps of stuff going on in Auckland, Wellington, like the cities, yeah. you know what I mean? Yeah. Whereas there's yeah. some beautiful landscape and there's some great talent and, you know, Omaru and in those sort of smaller areas and stuff, yeah. you know, it'd be, yeah. it'd be, it'd be awesome to see, a, you know, a lot more kind of coming out of, of, of those areas, you know? Yeah. Yeah. Mm. It's, it's sort of, it is easier to sort of, it is easier to sort of distribute work now, I think. Um, the sort yeah. Of, um, online and you've got sort of opportunity to do sort of video on demand and things. And yes. when yeah. I made my first film, I had a Super 8 camera. And, yeah. um, Brilliant. Couldn't really I, I think I saw that. That was, that, was, yeah. that was back in the 80s, was it? Uh, yeah, that's right. Yeah. That's so yeah. great. I love that. Yeah. Nothing uh, looks better than Super 8, though. Oh. Yeah. Well, I mean, many people like, you know, saw Steven Spielberg and George Lucas and people like that, they all started with Super 8 films. Mm -hmm. So, yeah. I mean, I remember it was not long after I'd seen Lawrence of Arabia and I thought, well, I I have to make a film. And um, I managed to pick up this film camera quite cheaply on a a sort of market stall. I realised it was going to take about... Um, th- three three months of after school work to actually afford a, a reel of film to go in it, and that would only yep. last for three minutes. You know? I know, I know. And then and then there's the whole developing side of it as well, you yeah. know. Which we yeah. we really, yeah. I mean, gosh, we've really got it made with with digital now, and just in yeah. you know in terms of in terms of production. But uh, you know, there is something about that that grain of film. You know, I yeah. I, I I I don't know whether any digital you know, version would ever really properly be able to pick that up, you know. I remember, I mean, one, one of the anecdotes actually that, that that David Lean told me was um, he had this rather, that when he made both um, Lawrence of Arabia and Bridge on the River Kwai, he had this rather stormy relation with his producer, Sam Spiegel. Mm-hmm. And he said that, of course, because they were working in the desert um, on Lawrence and in the sort of jungles of um, Sri Lanka for Bridge on the River Kwai, he, he never got to see the film until after, you know, until after they'd left location. Because wow. they, you know, couldn't have rushes done locally and all the film was sent back to London to be processed. And he said, but Sam Spiegel kept telling me, this film you're making out there, it's all rubbish, it's all rubbish. And it's like <laughs> none of your shots have come out. And he, he said, after that, Sam Spiegel was just trying to think, well, if I tell him it's all rubbish, he'll try harder. <laughs> you know? Wow. <laughs> That's one way to do it. Jeez. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> What a partnership. I love it. (laughs) So have you got, um, have you got someone, you know, speaking of partnerships, is there, have have you got sort of like a kind of key kind of crew or like producer or anything like that, that you generally collaborate with consistently down there? Um, Well, on on the, um, you know, under the, um, the the film and Gizmo work with um, Crystal Day and she was, um, Mm. It was a great sort of organising person. So I think that's what you need with, with a film. You need the sort of ideas person. Um, so I think one of the things that's, that's quite hard about filmmaking is that you've got to be you've got to be a dreamer. You've got to be able to sort of conjure up the images mm. in your mind. And dreamers don't usually go hand in hand with practical people, but you've yeah. got to be very, very practical and really quite organised to, um, to be a filmmaker. Oh, yes. Um, oh, yes. Need yeah. your production crew. <laughs> yeah, yeah. And, you, gotta, you, you, know, got, you need a dreamer, and you need a need a need a solid yeah. on the ground person. <laughs> In a way, with writing, I mean, writing obviously is a more solitary activity, and I think having, you know, the sort of I suppose the last decade I've spent most of my time sort of writing rather than you know filmmaking. Is in a way, it's so mm. you, you 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 don't have that sort of you don't have that sort of team team spirit that you have making a film, but. Yeah. 
then you do have a um i mean have have a really good sort of team of beta readers who um you know get them to read my first drafts and mm. um you know it's a load of crap tell me you know yeah. uh, and that's quite good early on if you if you're actually heading in the wrong direction and people can tell you that this isn't working then yes. you can you know, scrap it and start again and then when you get further down the track um you know i've got a you know really good good manuscript editor mm. um Caroline Barron, who works really, you know, really well, and she'll go goes through the manuscript line by line and makes suggestions. And then um, after that, I've got a, you know, like a, a copy editor and a line editor who, you know, go, goes through it and corrects any, you know, any sort of grammatical errors and things like that that crop mm. up. And just weed out sometimes, um, you know, just ugly sentences that don't read very well. Yeah. And then... Once it's all typeset in the book, and then a, a you know a proof proofreader goes through it to make sure there are no typos or no mistakes have cropped in when it's been transferred from the manuscript into the printed book. So mm-hmm. you do have a team of people there, and they also kind of do share their ideas. And um, yeah, yeah and, and back working on the audio book, it's been great to hear you know your feedback. And um, yeah, it, it's yeah you you're, you're never actually sort of alone in it. Yeah. Yeah, I know. It seems that in 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 all of its different inceptions, you know, whether it's going from a novel into an audio book into a you know into an ebook and then into a film, or you know, like there's there's always just yeah. such a huge body of different skilled individuals that go along with each phase of it. Eh? It's yeah, in no way yeah. a small a, a small feat at all. <laughs> uh, yeah. Yeah. Um, now I know there was um on on your website of which I will put into the the episode notes um on one of your pages you said that you um you were sort of like an active advocate and supporter of other filmmakers and things like that within your area so are there are there any other sort of projects that you're collaborating on that aren't your sort of brain children necessarily but that you're sort of supporting or at the at the moment um it because it does seem to have dried up with the pan- pandemic yes. um, yeah. but um you know, I supported um, uh, um, a couple of uh, called Fred Potts, who's making a film in um, in Gisborne, mm-hmm. um, and so added support for that. And we've got a couple of um, um, people who just done relatively sort of small scale videos that help with the editing. Mm-hmm. So quite a good sort of edit setup. Um, yes, that's um, right. You've got your own sort of studio space and things, yeah, more or less. Eh? Yeah. Cool. And um, I've helped done a, a couple of um, music videos, which uh, yeah, and, and they're I think as a filmmaker, they're a, they're a you know kind of wonderful medium because you can um, you, you've kind of got a sort of you know freedom that you don't usually have in filmmaking. Mm, yeah, <laughs> music videos are really great fun. Yeah, yeah no, totally, totally. You can generally you can get them done within a day or two as well if you're lucky, yeah, so, yeah, which is yeah. which is a lot easier, you know, for your continuity and everything. In case you're actually yeah. getting a haircut, <laughs> I've actually written I've written a song for Threatens on the Carpet. Um, really, I'm just looking for the right performer, just you know, because I'd like to do a music video for that, but you know, down the track when the book comes out. Yeah, cool. Um, so yeah, so I, I would like to do a music video of that and sort of maybe incorporate some images from you know what what the, the book's going to be about. Oh yeah. wow, that's oh, so exciting! Golly gosh. Well, I mean, right at the very start, you did sort of mention that people often say, you know, <laughs> you don't 
they are unsure how you fit it all in. I mean, <laughs> so are you are you are you still in in general practice? Are, are you, are you I, I still work, a yeah, doctor? Uh, yeah, yeah. Uh, I work um, four, four days a week um, right. in, in general practice now. I mean, I have sort of cut down as you know a bit older, yeah. um, <laughs> and and I suppose the biggest thing is I've I've, I've um, able to stop doing sort of the out of hours on call. Um, mm. Which you know was was quite sort of quite demanding. Yeah. So yeah. So I work four days at four days at the practice. I have a Tuesday off, which I all spend writing. I was trying mm-hmm. um, sort of write, and um, I, I suppose I do spend most um, you know most, most weekends at it really. And um, usually Saturday mornings kind of like family time. We usually do mm-hmm. do something together then and then but sort of later on the Saturday most Sundays I do write so yeah and a lot of it is yeah ideas sort of come into your head at just odd times you know you're thinking about something so I always have a um I I mean usually actually just note it down and notes application on the you know on an iPhone you know just just write down or even dictate ideas into it because you just think of these things at the most sometimes the most awkward moment and you get Mm -hmm. a you just, or maybe something somebody says makes you think, well, yeah, that's how that person would have replied, you know, in the <laughs> in that scene. And yeah. yeah. Do you think any of your um, patients, or I, I suppose you know, people that you know or that you've met that have really influenced um, the stories yeah. that you've chosen to write, do you think that they are aware of how much of a sort of well, influence they've been, or or perhaps their 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 story or their you know yeah their quality well in, in this book that's coming out um the road to Madapur um I, I've incorporated actually a number of you know a, actually a number of real cases in it mm. and then each case I mean although they've been anonymized I, I've actually got in touch with the people who was in it and said look this is what I want to do are you happy you know and I wouldn't yeah. tell somebody's story without them being you know happy for me to do so oh gosh that's so cool that must be kind of (laughs) I don't know it must be kind of I don't know um like a little bit of an honor really you know to sort of go oh cool my my story was something that was you know clearly quite potent for you you know like it's it's a cool it's a cool thing yeah (laughs) keep it alive so if if there are any people that are um, around that are keen to get in touch or to learn more about your projects or even to get involved with you when everything does sort of start itself back up is there is there a sort of best way that people can get in touch with you if you're yeah well um i've got i've got the website mm-hmm. um which is just davidwittick.com yep um and you can um th- there's a message there's a contact on there which gets direct through to me mm. so that's it's sort of the easiest way and um brilliant well that's yeah. good i'm glad to know so i'll let i'll let Everyone who is involved in anything with regards to media, let's be honest, if it's music, if it's books, if it's, yeah. if it's film, or if it's music videos, or if it's television, yeah. any of the, any of the above, yeah. I'm pretty sure that David will be incredibly helpful by, by way yeah. of everything, yeah. everything and everyone that he knows. Yeah. So thank you so very much wow. for your time, David. Yeah. <laughs> it's yeah. been lovely oh, to it's finally been be able to check. It's been great, yeah. yeah. <laughs> It's been a lovely time being able to chat with you. I hope that you yeah. have a wonderful rest of your Tuesday afternoon. Yes, yeah. <laughs> Get down to some writing now, I guess. <laughs> Good stuff. You'll need to. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> Thanks, great. David. Thank you. Thanks a lot for joining us. I'm Romy Hooper. You've been listening to Sound Salad for all things spoken and all things heard. 
To hear more Sound Salad episodes, go to www.soundsalad.co.nz. This has been brought to you by my gold sponsor, Audiobooks NZ. Check out their library at www.audiobooksnz.co.nz.